Let's, um, instead of pay, let's pray, and then we'll think about this passage in Joshua. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the time that you've uh, gathered us here now to think uh, carefully about your word and look at this um, part of salvation history. And Lord, we pray that um, as we see how Jesus fulfills these things, um, we'd, we'd benefit from that truth and um, get to know you more and, and appreciate what you've done for us through Christ. Uh, we pray that we'd um, respond well to this time and we, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know if you picked up the tone of the passage when it was read, that it was actually, uh, it was a battle. And there was the, um, that's really the, the topic, there's a battle that's, that's taken place in Joshua chapter 5. And so as we um, look at a battle type scene, uh, we're supposed to pick up that tone of pensiveness and uh, a bit of trouble leading into it. The difficult thing is we've, we actually know the end game, don't we? We know how the story ends up, so we don't sort of feel too anxious before it. But there is uncertainty in battle. And I've heard it said that uh, life is a battle and that lo the longer you're in it, the more you realise it. Now, I suppose that's one way people could view life as a battle. But for most of us, we are really a long way away from a, a real war zone, aren't we? But we still get the picture. We don't have to be in Afghanistan, Syria or Iraq to experience feelings of struggle to get by. We know there's many uh, stresses and strains on us emotionally, sometimes with our physical ailments, possibly even financial stress. There's all sorts of stresses that we face. And there's always the sheer uncertainty of life. Even if things are going well, there's still uncertainty that we face. From time to time, we might hear about soldiers who uh, get anxious before the next day on the battlefield. They get worried before they go to sleep. They don't sleep very well. And then when they get up in the morning, they have panic attacks. They're anxious about what the day might hold for them. And yet, we also know that we don't have to be in what's described as the theatre of war to perhaps sleep badly or wake up in the morning and feeling like it's, it's going to be a bit uncertain what the day is going to hold. So as Christians, how are we to come to terms with uncertainty in life as God's people? That's one of the first questions. How are we to come to terms with the uncertainty that life has before us? And where's our source of comfort as we face each day as God's people? Where is our source of comfort? Well, today we're going to look for some answers from God's Word. As we look at his unfolding plan of salvation history, as it's, uh, we've read this passage in Joshua. And we see that uh, Joshua and the Israelites now prepare for the first battle in the Promised Land. We pick up the story not from last week, because Scott spoke from Colossians, but from the week before, we saw that there was a new generation of Israelites. Their parents fell in the desert wandering around because of their disbelief uh, and their disobedience. But now there's a new dawn. This generation's no longer eating manna and quail. They're probably glad to say goodbye to that. And they're eating the produce of the land. They've been circumcised and identify as God's faithful people, the covenant community. They've celebrated a Passover and remembered that slavery in Egypt is, is gone and a new day has dawned 
of redemption in the land. But as they take possession of the land, it involves a struggle. It involves battle. And God's word gives us some uh, hints or pointers as to why there is uh, some of the, the battles that will take place. In fact, we get a foretaste of this when God promised the, the good land to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. He was promised descendants and a land of blessing. Uh, but Abraham was told about God's judgment on the inhabitants of the land. In Genesis 15, verse 15 and 16, God said to Abraham, You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And so the point here is that God's saying, look, these people have been rebellious and wicked, and there's a limit to that before judgment comes, which involves taking the land. It's not because Israel is such a, a righteous nation that they'll be an instrument of God's judgment, but it's still a means by which God uh, exercises his judgment on the nations in the land of Canaan. And we see something of God's willingness to bring about his plans for his people. God is a type of warrior for his people. We see that in verses 13 through to 15. <clears throat> now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? And neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Well, this sounds a bit like when Moses had an encounter with the burning bush. He was in a sacred space in the presence of God. And there was a message given to uh, Moses at that time to, to be the one who would redeem God's people and here Joshua is in that kind of position where he's about to receive some news about a battle plan which we'll see after verse 2 in chapter 6 but at this point we see there's a conversation with the captain or the commander of the Lord of Hosts and it's hard to distinguish between this person and God himself but, but he's here as a type of warrior for God's people now, the idea that uh, God is a warrior for his people wasn't something uh, that's just come at this point in time. Uh, Moses was told, he told the people, uh, the Lord will fight for you, you only need to be still. This is when they were crossing through the Red Sea. So there's already the idea that God is going to fight for his people. In Exodus chapter uh, 13, when they do make it through the Red Sea, uh, Moses sings, and this is the song he says. He says, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he is hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. Skipping down to verse 11 of chapter 13 of Exodus. Who among the gods is like you, you Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. You stretch out your right hand and the earth swallows your enemies in your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed 
In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. And so the point here is that God will fight for his people. He's described as a warrior and he's going to bring them into the good land. And now the commander of the army of the Lord has now come to bring this about. But does this scenario remind you of another time? Well, it might not, but it reminded me of one. And, and I thought about um, how Israel was taken by God. They were formed as a large nation in Egypt. And then we're told that God carried them on eagles' wings and brings them to himself. He leads them out. And he takes Israel and he places them in this promised land. It's a bit of a reminder of what happened to Adam. Uh, in chapter 2 of Genesis, we read that uh, God formed um, from the dust of the earth Adam and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils and that he took Adam and placed him in Eden. So Adam's formed somewhere in the world and then placed in Eden. He's taken there to um, work it and take care of it, to serve in the presence of God. And after Adam is exiled from Eden, he can't get back there. Do you remember why? Well, it's because there's a guard there with a sword in his hand. Well, maybe not in his hand, but there's a sword. This is what it says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. Speaking of God, after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And cherubim are like a, a special forces guard. And here's a sword saying, you can't come into this sacred space. And it's just interesting, isn't it? Israel's been formed. They've, they've been uh, formed outside of the promised land. They're taken to the promised land by God. And then just as they're on the way of inhabiting it, there's a guard with a sword. It's, just, it's an interesting little pattern. And over time we'll see that Israel does have a bit in common with Adam, doesn't Israel? Adam is uh, to be a royal priest under God. Israel is to be a kingdom of priests, royal priests under God. Adam sins against God and he's exiled out of Eden, as we see in the story of Israel. They don't tend to stay there too long, do they? But we'll come back to that part of the story at another time. For now, we see an exciting stage. As they prepare to inhabit this good space, God's dwelling, to be his people. And this brings us to the Battle of Jericho. In verse 1, we can see that the people there have heard about the Israelites and they're anxious. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. And this echoes the prophecy of Moses that the nations will tremble before as Israel's coming. Now we're not told that Israel's going into the good land because they are so righteous. It's, it's not that they are. They're not. We learn that from Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4. It's because of the wickedness of the nations there that the Lord's going to drive them out before Israel. We already had a, a bit of a warning about that in Genesis chapter 15. God said that the sin hasn't reached its full limit, but by the time we come now, it seems to have reached its limit and God's going to bring judgment. Now, the reason why God's judging these nations is because of wickedness. It's not uh, he's just being willy-nilly. We're told in Deuteronomy uh, about the reasons why God's driving them out. 
this is what it says in Deuteronomy 8, 18, verse 9. When you enter the land your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. So he's saying to Israel, don't be like them. Verse 10, let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire. This is kind of practices that were going on there. Who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft or casts spells, or who is a medium or a spiritist, or who consults the dead. These people aren't worshippers of the living and true God. They're, they've turned aside and their practices uh, um, aren't good. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. Because of these same detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. And so God's word reminds us that God is holy, that sin will be judged, that as Israel enters the land, they become a type of means or an instrument of God's judgment on wickedness there. In fact, the theme of God's judgment is one that uh, we see throughout the Bible and the idea that there is going to be a judgment day uh, gains currency as we read what the Bible says. There's a recognition of the day of the Lord is coming where the God of all the earth will judge all the earth and in the New Testament Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica about that time he says, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labour pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Now, my wife's had a few babies and I can assure you that when the uh, labour pains come and her babies came in under an hour, we had to get moving. Uh, but these are, there weren't any hospitals in, when this was written. And, uh, these, are, these are things that are coming we don't exactly know when. And so there is a sense of um, shock that it'll be too late when God brings the judgment day. And so people need to get right with God before that time. Now, although God in his sovereignty and in his justice will judge, in his mercy he provides a way to enjoy freedom from his condemnation against our sin. And out of this nation from uh, the Israelites comes uh, another Joshua, uh, Jesus. It's the Greek for Joshua and it means the Lord saves. And so Paul can remind the church at Thessalonica the good news in light of the judgment day and says, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. And so, yes, there is a backdrop of judgment. That's a reality. But God has appointed us to receive salvation through Jesus. And that salvation is described in other parts of the Bible, like Romans chapter 8, as being free from God's condemnation. This is good news. It's Paul can write, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. God knows how to judge the world, but in his grace and kindness and mercy, 
He offers all kinds of people, everyone, salvation from their sin through Jesus. Well, let's go back to Joshua now, and we're invited to get a handle on this special plan of victory. In verses 2 to 7, there is a plan to take the land, but it doesn't initially involve a lot of military might on Israel's part. Did you notice that? There's a bit of confidence that's given to Joshua, though. In verse 2, God says, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. God is so sovereign over the battle, we could say the battle is the Lord's. He knows the outcome. And that must have come to some relief to Joshua. He knows what's going to take shape. And so the feeling of angst before the battle that he might have had, the sleepless night, or anxiety on the day of the battle, is met with comforting words from God who's in ultimate control over this situation. It would have been very difficult for Joshua to understand how marching around the city, you know, for seven days, blowing trumpets, ram's horns, and then shouting is going to, you know, how that actually was really going to play out. And he just had to trust God in that, and so did the people. And that's what he does. He serves the Lord in obedience to the command, and the people get sorted out, ready to follow God's directions. In verses 8 to 14, we see stage 1 completed. I'm going to pick that up in verse 9, if you're reading along with me. Verse 9, the armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding, but Joshua had commanded the army, do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word until I tell you to shout, then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling at once. Then the army returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning. The priest took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them, and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to their camp. They did this for six days. And so the idea of the ark of the Lord there, it contains the Ten Commandments. It's a record of... Having made a covenant with God, God gives them the, his law to describe how they're to live as his people. They have a, a stash, they've stashed that in the, uh, the ark, but the cherubim are there and God is enthroned above the cherubim. God's presence is in, in amongst his people. He's their king. And in a sense, it's God's kingship that's being carried around this city. But the tension builds as we get to the seventh day and I'll read this end game for us in verses 15 to 21. On the seventh day they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priests sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And at this point, the narrative of Joshua speaking to the people continues, but it might be something he's actually told them ahead of time. It's hard to imagine him saying, shout, and them all going in to do the job, and then he kind of goes and says these next bits. So let's have a look at the next bit, verse 17. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. 
Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things, so that you'll not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you'll make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. So at this point, there is a bit of excitement because there's an opportunity to take another step closer to victory. But we're reminded that the key thing is not simply the victory, but the people's obedience to God. And that's why this section is important. They're told uh, to keep away from the devoted things to God so they don't bring destruction upon themselves. God, it's important that they actually obey God. Well, in verse 20 following, the narrator starts to spell out the results. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in and they took the city. They devoted the city of the Lord to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep and donkeys. Well, trusting God proves to be worthwhile. The wall collapses and Israel enjoys victory in the battle. God's glorified in this process. It's not the normal way that people might think about how they're going to have victory over the enemy but it comes true according to what God's plan said. And it's as if God's saying to his people, you need to trust me to give you victory in the way that I'm choosing to give you victory. And so they're challenged to trust and obey and to, vote, to, to devote all the plunder to the Lord. And their obedience to God is important, as we'll start to see in the next chapter of Joshua. Well, whilst there's a type of judgment exacted on the Canaanites, we also see a dimension of God's mercy in this next section. In verse 25, Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho and she lives among the Israelites to this day. We read about that in chapter 2, that Rahab helped the spies and she was to ping out of her window a cord, a scarlet cord, uh, and it seems the wall's fallen down apart from her place. Rahab's willing to humble herself to help the people of God and to become a member of the people of God. And she then even features in the storyline of the Bible that brings about salvation through Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 verse 5 we find out that she becomes the mother of Boaz in the book of Ruth Boaz is a he's a good guy he marries Ruth and uh, his mother is Rahab and it turns out that uh, Ruth and Boaz have a baby Jesse and Jesse is the father of King David and later on out of that line comes another king called Jesus Well, in the story of Rahab uh, becoming a member of the people of God, we see that God extends mercy to all kinds of people, of all nations, even this lady who's um, disreputable, regretfully. I think life would have changed for her. Um, But it's also a message which rings out through the whole Bible. 
In the New Testament, we see that salvation goes uh, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, and the whole world starts to hear about salvation that comes through Jesus. And Paul can write to a church of Gentiles at Ephesus and say, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. God acts with justice and he shows mercy to those who turn to him, those who once were far away, he brings near through the blood of Christ. And that's something we need to remember, isn't it? Uh, That God is sovereign over salvation, but he also uses means. He's used people to share that message of salvation throughout the world. We've been those who've received that message of salvation and become the people of God through trusting Jesus. And we've got a responsibility in God's mission as well to continue to share the hope that we've got in the, in the places that God puts us. There's all sorts of people that we uh, interact with and our responsibility is to, at times in our own way, uh, share about the hope we have in Jesus as well. And God can use that to change people's hearts and people become Christians. Well, what lessons can we take from this story in Joshua? The first lesson is the battle is the Lord's. God is sovereign. As a Sunday school kid, I used to sing, Joshua won the battle at Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua won the battle at Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. It's a little bit of a... Untruth, though, because God won the battle at Jericho. Joshua was there, but really the battle is the Lord's. It's a story of God's sovereignty uh, to bring out a victory in a very unlikely way. He achieves his plans and purposes uh, by marching, marching his people around the city and blowing horns and shouting. And yet the people also respond in faith and they carry out the command to take the victory as well. And so we see that God's sovereignty and human responsibility uh, still go hand in hand. God has won the victory and the means by which he does it is through the people. And God hasn't changed. Uh, The same God who was there in the Old Testament is the same God who's there in the New Testament. We just know a bit more about him. And this tension between the sovereignty of God in bringing about salvation and human responsibility is also there in the New Testament as well. In Philippians, Paul uh, tells the church that they're to actually take hold of salvation that God's provided, but to actually work out their salvation. This is what he says. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. They're not simply just to let go and let God. Their responsibility is to work out, to, to continue to fear and tremble uh, at God in the knowledge that God's actually the one who's working in them so that they hold on to God. In view of God's grace, their call is to respond in faith and obedience. And that's the way that we should be living as well as opposed to living in unbelief and disobedience to God. That's not the life we've been called to. And in sum, God is sovereign in salvation 
and we've got the responsibility to respond the right way to his grace. The next take-home message from this story, or the the lesson we can learn, is that uh, there is a battle and there is a victory over the enemies of God. We see the triumph, but the enemies of God's people take a different shape in the New Testament. In Colossians, Paul describes the work of Jesus on the cross as a spiritual as a triumph over spiritual enemies. There's still a battle and there's still a triumph, but the enemies are different. Paul says, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Holy war today is a spiritual battle that Christ has won. Whilst pockets of resistance remain, one day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so in the same way that the, the way that the battle worked out in Joshua's time was a bit unorthodox, it didn't look very powerful to be marching around and that kind of thing, uh, the cross doesn't look altogether powerful either. But it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. And so we've got to recognise, even though the cross looks weak, uh, this is God's means of achieving a triumph over spiritual enemies uh, to put away the work of Satan and to end sin and death. And so our challenge is to be on our guard against the evil one, that we're not enticed into temptation to disown the Lord, Instead, we are those who hold on to salvation in Jesus as we then enter God's kingdom at the end. Well, I mentioned at the beginning of the talk that some people view life as a battle. And the longer you're in it, the more you realise it can be a battle. The Israelites have experienced a different kind of battlefield to the one we're in, but at one level, it doesn't matter for us, does it? This is reality for us that life can sometimes be hard and it can be filled with all sorts of uncertainty that we can be anxious about. So how can we come to terms with uncertainty in life as God's people? And where's our source of comfort as we face each day with a degree of uncertainty? Well, the answer from God's word is that there are some things in life that we can be uncertain about. It's true. We, we do know that there are all manner of uncertainties and difficulties. But there are other things that we can be certain of. Things that are better than being certain of death and taxes. I know that some of you be thinking that, yes, we can be sure of death and taxes, but there are better things than that to be certain of, and one of them is the sovereignty of God. We can see that the battle was the Lord's back then. God's won the victory for our salvation in Christ. And nothing's going to stop him establishing his kingdom at the end as well. Each day we can find comfort in the fact that God's also working in our life. So there's comfort from knowing he's sovereign. But the passage that I read earlier from Philippians says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. We can be confident that God's not just leaving us in the lurch. He's actually working in our lives to help us to press on and persevere as his people. Even when we face all kinds of difficulties and stresses in life, God hasn't left us. So our challenge is to be those who 
live with confidence in the sovereignty of God. He's going to bring about our salvation because he's working in us with his grace to hold on. And it's the challenge for us to also, I suppose, work in step with him. We can uh, step out in faith on the basis that God's uh, doing a great work in our lives to help us persevere. Well, let's be those who are grateful for the triumph that Jesus brought over the spiritual enemies to bring us into God's kingdom at the end. Let us pray. Our Lord God, we can see this um, battle in the past that uh, you were sovereign over and that um, you taught your people that they needed to trust you uh, to enjoy victory and, and life with you. And Lord, we do give you thanks for the work of Jesus that um, we can see that even though the cross may look uh, weak and powerless, uh, that's the way that you've triumphed for our salvation as well. And Lord, in, uh, in a life of uncertainty in the world and when the, we face different stresses and get anxious about different things, we, we pray that we'd remember your sovereignty over all things. And Lord, we, um, we give you thanks that for the promises in your word that uh, you've got grace that's sufficient for us, that you're the one who works in us to will and to act according to your good purpose. So Lord, we thank you that you haven't left us, but that you continue to work in our lives and help us to persevere as your people. We thank you for days like today when we can uh, again be refreshed from your word and encouraged by each other and these become the means, some of the means by which you help us to continue. Lord, we thank you for this time now. We've had to remember these good truths from your word. and We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.